Hello, you. Graham Norton here. What a Saturday we had here on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Let's see what's in store today. Shepik Sandy has a brand new book called Scatterbrain, talking about her ADHD diagnosis. Show chef Martha is back on the road, and this time she's helping one lucky family with picnic preparations. But before all of that, Maria McCurlin's rustling through some letters so that we can help you with your dilemmas. Now... Where has she got to? Morning, Maria. Good morning, Graham Norton. How the devil are you? Do you know, I'm grand. How are you? (laughs) Well, aside from 70-mile-an-hour winds, everything's very good. Puppy does not like the wind. Puppy is frightened of the wind. Puppy is frightened of everything. Well, Well, Puppy hasn't hasn't experienced wind yet, so, you know, it's (sighs) got to learn. Lives by the seaside, but got to learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is true. This is true. And all week, Graham, uh, this is my sort of week I take off to watch all of the tennis, which has been extremely exciting. I know you're not a tennis fan, but Sorry? I. <laughs> <laughs> so today's final is between Anjabur and Vondrosova, who is unseeded. Will be very, very exciting. Are those, uh, are those re- uh, the boys or the girls? Sorry, this is the girls. Okay. Ons Jabur is seeded number six, and the other, Von Drosseber, I think her name is, is not seeded at all. So that would be very exciting. Is she the one and who tomorrow... just had a baby? Is she the one who just had a baby? No, that was it from Ukraine. Sadly, she was knocked out. That was a lovely story, and we wanted her to win, but no, she was knocked out quite quickly. Where, where's, the the on, where's the unseeded? Where's the unseeded one from? Uh, I think she's from Belarus. Foreign. She's foreign lands. Yeah. Oh, She's gosh. abroad. She's from abroad. Who even are you? Who even are you? <laughs> and tomorrow is Alcaraz, um, who's 20, 20 years old. Not only could he be our son, he could be our grandson. And Djokovic, obviously, is defending his title. And that will be super exciting. I actually watched it while I was on the cross trainer yesterday, thinking, well, they're working hard. I better work hard too. Watched it on the cross trainer. And as I was watching all the shots puffing and blowing, I was thinking, oh, I could have got that shot. <laughs> That's what's called delusional. That is what is called very, very delusional. But if you are not able to watch it on the telly, it's, it compels me to tell you that you can listen to Lisa O'Sullivan on TalkSport and she will give you updates all throughout the day. Oh, she'll go, oh, they're still hitting. And yes, now, yeah, they're still there. That I mean, banging. can you imagine how hard... <laughs> How hard it is to commentate on a tennis match when you've got to tell everybody the front volley there, backhand, oh, just in, oh, was that in, or was it out? You know, I, it makes my blood sort of start to freeze to think Particularly of with those names full of consonants and things. I mean, quite hard to do. <laughs> names full of consonants. That's You just say, oh, the one with many consonants has just done an ace. That is fantastic. Well, no, tomorrow, tomorrow's good because you just go, oldie in, young one, out, you know. <laughs> It's easy. 20 yeah. years old. And yesterday I watched him and he's completely, he was in the semi-final yesterday. Unstoppable. Put out Medvedev. That's, is that how many consonants is that? That's too right many to for know. you, isn't it? Yeah. But also, I, I mean, I feel sort of sorry for Djokovic because everyone's going to want the young guy to win. Of course, that's the way it is. But, you know, sometimes that kind of crowd, it's never hostility at Wimbledon. Oh, goodness me, no. But it is, um, you know, they cheer for the underdog. They actually cheer. And then when it's somebody who they don't like so much, they just go, well done, Uh, because they want the underdog to win. But sometimes it, it can motivate you. It can make you, you know, go, well, you know, 
Here's one for you, baby. Look yes, at that. I, it was funny. I watched the news last night and uh, the person was saying, you know, all the drama of the centre court. And it was like Djokovic raising an eyebrow at some fan. Something was like, no, well, that's what passes for drama now. Come back, Ilya Nastasi. No, I tell you what it was. He got told off. He got told off for hindrance, which is when they hit the ball now. You know what I mean? They hit it so hard, my arms ache just watching. And he went, he goes, ugh. And that noise was a hindrance, so I think he lost a point, which was very harsh, and he was very, very cross with the umpire all the way through. And some, one of the commentators said about John, to John McEnroe, who is commentating now because he's quite old, um, you know, you were like that with umpires, and but it was never personal, was it? And John McEnroe said, no, it was never personal. I hated all umpires. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well put. Um, but but do they all grunt? I remember some radio show used to edit together all the tennis grunts and then just play play them in a row. Uh, I because- think you know some players kind of get used to it and it's a habit that you can't break. And then you know you get told off. We I think we had a, gr- a few grunters a while ago and people complained. But you know if you're putting that much effort in, you know I grunt on the cross trainer and there's no uh, you know I, there's no force being used on that force to get me on it or force while I'm on it. Sometimes I just go to snail's pace, but think <laughs> I'm going very very fast. Yeah, effort I think equals grunting. You must know that, Graham. When you chop wood. I'm not a grunter. I'll tell you that now. Not a grunter. I've watched you chop wood. <laughs> Remember once when we chopped wood at your house, both of us tried with two logs, yeah. grunted quite a lot and gave up. Yeah, there was no, there were, you know, we just hit wood. We didn't chop it. We just hit it. <laughs> and I think that evening we went without a fire. <laughs> oh, yes. We just had some candles in the grate. Uh, right, you gather some letters. Virgin Radio. Start reading a letter. You're very tolerant today. You're very tolerant, <laughs> Graham. Here's the first problem. Dear Graham and Maria, two close friendships of mine, brackets, combined, lasting 50 years, ended a couple of years ago for a number of reasons. Since then, I've struggled with the motivation to socialise and meet people. Anyone I do get into conversation with seems to end up with them talking about themselves and having no questions for me or showing any real interest. I know that now I'm in my late 40s, it won't be easy to replicate the long-standing relationships I I have had in the past. But how do I get to a point where I feel I want to make more of an effort to make new friends? My self-esteem has taken a knock and I wonder if anyone would even want to build a friendship anyway at this point in my life. And that is from Richard in Reading. Richard in Reading, I think what's needed here, mate, is uh, a reset, a reset of your thoughts, values, processes, because, you know, Richard, as we get older, we get less tolerant. You haven't told us why you, um, why the friendships uh, ended, two friendships, that's kind of a clue there, maybe. You know, we can get very moany as we get older, we can get very dissatisfied, we can feel disappointed, and then you know, bitterness can creep in and so on. So you need a reset to sort of remind yourself of the joy in life, Richard. You need to kind of, you know, I hate to sound too woo-woo here, but it's 
sort of gratitude for your health and your well-being and that you've got a roof over your head and all of those things so that you think, yeah, I'm doing okay. It can be very easy to set yourself up against others and think they're hopeless. When we have conversations, Richard, you know, somebody tells you something and you tell them back something and then it triggers something that reminds you. That's how conversations work. It's not kind of, I'll tell you about me. We all have too much baggage for that at this stage in our lives. So I would say, Richard, get... A sort of, a, you know, get some hobbies, go to evening classes maybe where you're shared interests with people and then after the evening class you go out for a coffee and you talk about, you know, how your pottery is not working out or how something fell off, the handle fell off. So you've got mutual interests to start with. Sitting in a pub and trying to chat to people is never good. So, I mean, you just need to shake yourself up, Richard. You need to go, I've got a life to live. What am I doing it? Wasting it. And, you know, I should get out there and find people of like mind to hang out with. And I think mutual interests will help you do that. I'm not saying go to pottery, but, you know, join a cycling <laughs> yes, club. Yes, you did. Join... <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. But I did. But, you know, as an example, join a cycling club or running club or something that is... You have a mutual interest with people and you can talk about your runs and what your times were, etc. What do you think, Graham? Well, I mean, Richard, really, you just need to buck your ideas up because, you know, the person who wrote this letter, I don't want to be their friend because they're, they're quite... Well, you know what I mean? Because they're quite, you know, the the man he describes being quite kind of like, oh, I'm not sure anyone would want to be my friend at this time in my life. And, you know, oh, people are just... Just, uh, no, Richard, no, stop that. Uh, you're perfectly fine in the world. You exist. You've had friendships in the past. And here's the thing. I think what Richard's looking for is kind of that really strong bond. He's looking for that kind of bond that he had with these two friends that he lost. And actually, that's not going to happen overnight. So just get out there and enjoy talking rubbish with people. Just enjoy nattering away to people, spending time with people. And then over time, you will, you know, develop friendships. You know, you'll click with someone or you'll have just spent quite a lot of time with people, or as Maria says, you might have an interest in shared with somebody, and then that will develop into one of those bonds. But just wanting it to be a, a quick fix, wanting some yeah. someone now playing the role of best friend is, that's not going to happen. You can't recast these people overnight. So a bit of patience, and also just kind of what you were saying, Maria, just enjoy the moment for what it is. I'm out, I'm talking to this person, they're a bit boring, but, uh, you know, it's it's better than being alone at home. And there you go, that's it. It's just, it's just uh, you know, it's just social interaction. That's all yeah. it is. And don't, yeah. you don't, but I don't think look when, for too I, much. I think Richard has, you know, when he says, uh, it's affected my self-esteem, you know, when you're feeling low and miserable and thinking I haven't got anything to say and I don't want to listen to other people's nonsense, then it can be difficult to make yourself go out. But we got one life, Richard, you know, you might as well live it. As Graham says, you know, there'll be boring people, there'll be interesting people. You've got to take the rough with the smooth and you won't recreate those those friendships that you had. But there's so much more out there. Just Give yourself a kick up the proverbial bottom and say, it's up to me. This is up to me. I've got to get over this. Yeah, there's something slightly, I think right now Richard's in a bad mindset and he's being a bit self-destructive and a bit, you know, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, kind of like no one would like to be my friend. And of course, nobody does want to be a friend of me like that. So uh, Richard in Reading, have you got advice for him? Keith from Long Eaton says... 
Richard, you're at a crossroads. No problem, it happens to all of us. Join a group you're interested in or try something new or both. You'll find that conversation and effort to meet people will come easier. Good luck. Ed Joy says, Richard needs to join apps like Meetup, where there are lots of groups where he can meet new people who share an interest. I moved to London in my 40s and it was tough. But finding friends through a shared interest really helped. I found a drama group where I've made friends with so many different people that I would never have met. Different ages, different professions, all while working together to create. Sadly, some friendships are fleeting and others go through cycles, closer at times than others. Take time to mourn the friendships he's lost and really think about what went wrong and make sure he's recovered from that and okay in himself. Thank you so much, Joy, for that. And because actually, you know, making friends when I got to London was so easy because I worked in restaurants and we all just hung out. And we all just went out and it was it was very simple. But of course, in, you know, as you're older, it is it is harder, I think. Lynn from the Wirral says, to lose one friendship is sad, but to lose two is careless. And these were long-standing Being a friend is listening to another person and thinking they're not asking about me. A walk and talk group is always a great icebreaker or a keep fit class. Because then, at least if you don't make friends, you're fit. Well done, Lynn from World Practical. Steve says, why not volunteer at your local scout group? Hello. I know from experience it will change your life and the life of young people for the better. I have an amazing supportive group of friends uh, through being involved. Well, so says Steve. And if that's what you fancy, Richard, uh, yeah, yeah, do it, do it, do it. Graham's Guide. Ah, yeah. Letter number two, please. <laughs> the return of the German. Dear Graham and Maria, I've just started a fabulous new job. I'm now a very senior manager at a new company and I couldn't be happier. Except... There is another manager who is the same level as me who has been downright aggressive and nasty to me. I head up a team that used to report to her, well before my time in brackets, and I've been told that she made a play to take over the team again when the previous person in my role left. Obviously that was thwarted and I seem to be paying the price, even though I've only been in the door for a matter of days. She's now blanking me and quietly refusing to deal with me, which is causing me issues in being able to do my new job. I'm embarrassed to say that I'm at a loss as to how to deal with this. It seems that she's very unhappy, but that's really nothing to do with me. I was delighted to land my dream job, but this woman is really spoiling it. Help. And that is from Fran in Salf- Salford. Salford. Um, Fran in Salford. Um, Salford. Uh, <laughs> I would say, of course you know how to deal with this. Listen, you're a senior manager. You head up a team. You have to tell people that are, you know, working with you. I don't want to say under you, but working with you. How to behave, how to get the job done, etc. Um, you do know how to handle this. What you do, Fran, is from Selford, is you say to her, can we have a meeting in my office or your office or outside maybe in a neutral space? And then you say, look, I know you were after my job and I had no idea about any of that. I've innocently come in and taken over this job, which I really love, and I'm sorry that you didn't get it. But... Taking it out on me is kind of fruitless and we all have to work together and I'd really like us to get along rather than to 
you know, butt heads all the time. It, it's nothing I can do about it now. I mean, even if I do leave, it'll be because of you. No, don't say that. Um, <laughs> what I was going to say. Uh, so I think you just have to, instead of this kind of, she's blanking you, so this is kind of like, you know, not non-speakers, you have to say, we're grown-ups. I'm sorry you didn't get the job, but I had nothing to do with that. You know, if I'd have been promoted from elsewhere, then maybe I'd have known, but I didn't know. But I'm in this job now, and I think we need to make it work. You know, will you work with me on this, miserable person who's unhappy? You know, yes, of course she's unhappy, but we pin a lot on one thing, and she's pinning it all on the job at the moment, and all on you. She's got a kind of hate campaign for you. So you have to kill her with kindness here and try and get her on side, Fran, in Telford. I mean, I would say go to HR, but, you know, you're a senior manager. You know how to deal with this. You've dealt with bigger things before, Fran. Don't let her get under your skin and try and have a word with her. You're both adults you both work for the same firm you need to make it workable rather than not speaking what do you think graham yeah i agree i think there obviously there's hr and there's whoever they both report to but i think they are last resorts i think because yes. you, you keep saying she's a senior manager no she's a very senior manager that's who <laughs> is she's a very senior manager so you don't get to be a very senior manager being a bit of a wallflower so come on fran uh big girl pants and off you go i and i do think you know it's as simple as kind of go whoa now because you haven't been there long which is great so it hasn't kind of this behaviour won't have kind of settled in and festered so just go whoa I really think we've got off on a wrong foot here so can we just reset because blah 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 the other thing to do is uh, talk to your team Talk to your team, do a lot of kind of a what's up with your one and uh, find out what well, they, they know, think she about knows. it. She knows. They told her that she wanted the job. No, 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 no. But find out, like, you know, what do they think of her? What's she like? What's, you know, what's the best way? They've worked with her. So they'll know the best way round this woman. Uh, because, mm. you know, that might be useful information. And also, your team will like you, Fran, because you don't like this woman. And that's, you know, that's bonding. That's got, In every group, there must be that person. And uh, hopefully it's this woman. So I, I think... I think, no, Graham, they, she, they used to report to this woman, who is, by the way, on the same level as Fran. She is also... Very, very senior. senior. She's manager. very senior. Very, very senior, manager. senior manager. So yeah. there, might be, there might be somebody who is aligned with this person who will go yeah, exactly. report back. I don't think Fran needs to talk to the team. I think, you're, you're right, Graham, big girl pants. She's got this. She needs to deal with this in a very senior manager way, which is to stop it, you know, to stop this, close it down. We have to work together. I would like to work together with you as a friend and colleague rather than as an enemy. It's not grown up. It's not good for the work. It's not good for the company. It's not good for my team. You know, I think you you have let her get under your skin, Fran, and you have to get over that because... Otherwise, what are you doing in a very senior management position? <laughs> also, isn't it weird that in companies like this, 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 this is a tale <laughs> as old as time, these sorts of weird rivalries and kind of trying to undermine people. And yet everyone works for the same company. Like, it's so odd. Like, no, you're all, this is all, we're all team whatever this is. That's our, that's the point of us, is we're all supposed to make this company as successful as possible. And yet so often these sorts of things happen. So, yeah, try try and uh, somehow undo the I the, think because the Fran has situation. only been there for... 
I think because Fran has only been there, as she says, for a couple of days or something now, hasn't she? Yes, a matter of days. Um, this woman is thinking, OK, I'm going to make her life a misery. Um, I'll start with my campaign now. And it's working. So you have to close it down, take her out for dinner, lunch, whatever, make her a cake. I don't know, just somehow <laughs> kill her with kindness. You know, my, my cake is the answer to everything. And say, this is not how we... Not, this is not how I want to work. And yes, I'm sure a, you don't a, want to work yeah. like this either. Yes, as a very senior manager, this isn't really how we, we operate. No, no, we want to do that. <laughs> I love that we're talking about very senior managers like we've ever even sniffed a job that has senior manager in the title. <laughs> are, are you a very senior manager? Then do get in touch. The Responses Part 2. Well, wouldn't you know it? I've been contacted by Lee in Shropshire. Also a senior manager. There you go. Uh, so, uh, Lee's advice is as follows. Foster open communication. Try and try to establish an open, non-judgmental line of communication with your colleague. Find common ground. Seek common interests or topics you can discuss to create a more comfortable atmosphere. This can help build rapport and make interreactions less awkward. Set boundaries. If the awkwardness is affecting your work or causing discomfort, establish clear boundaries without being confrontational. Politely communicate your ex expectations and boundaries, ensuring that your colleague understands the impact of their behaviour. So ends my TED Talk. Uh, that, that, that real PowerPoint energy around it, isn't it? Uh, thank you very much, Lee. Uh, Jewel says, I too have been in the same position as today's very senior manager. And whilst I agree they should try and sort it out informally, I urge them to log it. Oh, here you go. You log it with HR and keep a detailed dossier, <gasps> a dossier of her behaviours. I didn't and have been subjected to many years of personal attacks and underhand behaviour, which have caused me significant distress. HR eventually got involved, but due to the person's length of service, it's been difficult to resolve, although they now officially do not speak to me. Wow. Sometimes it's definitely not you, it's them. Their own psychological problems and petty jealousies, which you can't deal with alone. And HR have to get involved. Good luck. Jules, I'm so sorry you went through that. That sounds hideous. Uh, but well done for kind of not backing down and standing your ground. And, whoa, thank you so much. Tracy's been in touch. What is she? She's a HR director. And yes, she also says, uh, Fran, that you should make notes of the meetings, interactions and issues, experiences you have with this colleague. Aggressive behaviours clearly are a form of bullying. Equally ignoring colleagues in the workplace is also a form of bullying. If possible, try to seek to resolve this informally and meet her as Maria has suggested. Have a coffee. Tell her you want to work together, etc. Fan has to tackle this as she will not be the first colleague to have this experience with this person. She has to show leadership and tackle this, not just for herself, but for all colleagues. Again, make note of the meeting in case this has to go more formal. I suspect there is more to this. There always is. I love it. The drama. The drama. Oh, it's like Wimbledon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. A new memoir, Scatterbrain, uh, came out on Thursday and there's a trip planned to the Edinburgh Festival at the Pleasant Theatre in August. It's Shabara Kasandi. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm really well. Feeling very scatterbrained this this morning in particular. Um, I, yes, I feel like I know a lot about you 
now because this book it, it, so let's start with uh, your kind of your diagnosis it all came to a head in, in lockdown is that because lockdown exacerbated your ADHD no it wasn't that it's, I think it was I knew I knew there was something I needed to address but life was always so busy which really serves ADHD when it's undiagnosed it was in lockdown when I kind of thought about my poor children um, not having any respite from me like um, it was just like I was just in the house and away you know away away from the manic fizzing sort of world that I normally occupied and I ended up throwing this box of chocolates at the wall and it was that that made me go ah this is not a way to be around children because they'd never seen me throw anything at the wall before. And I thought that my brain is not coping. And this whole thing that I knew that I had, this, this need for chaos and this need for finding an adrenaline hit constantly um, needed to be addressed. So I apologized profusely to my children, gathered up the chocolates before the dogs could get to them, and I found a therapist who um, specialises in um, supporting people with ADHD. So, yeah, that's what happened. And that's not a glory story. Um, I'm, I'm aware of that. But I think it's, it's important to be quite honest that the emotional yeah. dysregulation of ADHD, it, it really needs to be addressed because it affects the people around you. In this case, you know, my children were yeah. denied a box of chocolates. And what's extraordinary about the memoir is then it's it's I it don't reminded me of it reminded me of like Hercule Poirot at the end of Agatha Christie kind of explaining everything. It's like suddenly so many things in your life you kind of you you were able to figure out through the lens of this diagnosis. Well, the lights were turned on, and yeah. and when it comes to understanding what you need in a moment, so I listen to so many. Um, biographies and uh, autobiographies of particularly comedians and musicians because the way the minds of comedians and musicians work is something that I really relate to and I'm always astounded by the ones who seem to have a clear vision of where they want to be and because because I did too but something this like steel curtain would come down in my mind and it was almost something physical dragging my brain somewhere else like deep into daydream or deep into um quite damaging stuff that I did to self-soothe so I look back on it and I just think well you know what you wanted so why were you in a tailspin why were you sort of spinning away from all the things that you wanted so it was really interesting to learn about my brain and my brain chemicals and how um, they've really impacted um, my life in ways that were um, fun, <laughs> I'll be honest, but also just um, so much unnecessary anxiety, so much of, if I'd known like I have a dopamine deficiency in my brain and that there would be other things to help me rather than the damaging things I was doing, it would have been useful. And so when I talked publicly about ADHD, I, I kind of thought, 
I'll get people saying, no, here's someone else that wants to have a thing. That didn't happen at all. I just had an avalanche of adults relating to me and just realizing how much of uh, addiction, addictive behaviors I had. You know, I could, I'd been combing over them for years and various therapies, but when I got support for ADHD, that's when they finally um, had some meaningful uh, recovery. And and because there is, it seems like there's so much more ADHD in the world. Is that because of better diagnosis or are more people finding these deficiencies? Are these deficiencies becoming uh, you know, more prevalent? Well, I, I don't know is the answer, but I will tell you from my experience and the people I talk to and the research that I've done is that I find, um, a, I think the term attention deficit hyperactivity disorder will change soon. I hope it does because the disorder thing, I don't believe it is a disorder. I think it's a difference. It's not something to be cured. It's something to be known about. I think that it is as ordinary as being short-sighted or yeah. being left-handed that with some adjustments and some support, you can manage it. It's it's not the ADHD itself that's problem. It's the not knowing about it because you think that you have the same tools as everyone else and they're doing things that you find impossible, like opening up your post or not having that 17th drink or just things like that where you think, well, it must be me. It must be my lack of willpower. So I will try, but it's, it's like trying to do, um, you know, it's like trying to do a backflip when you're not a gymnast. Uh, but, and then that sense of frustration can really erode your self-confidence. And that's why, that's where ADHD is a problem. It's the, it's the not knowing. Um, and I think, you know, there, there are studies and, and theories to say that because um, ADHD uh, people tend to be the risk takers, um, that, you know, in, in the times of when we were hunter gatherers, we needed the ones with ADHD to go for that antelope. Um, whatever dangers there were. So yeah. I don't know if they're antelopes. I'm not very good on my... Um, <laughs> they're, they're delicious. Delicious. So uh, I'm interested, Chabby, in terms of stand-up, it would seem that the constant repetition of a stand-up's act would not be conducive to someone with ADHD. So how did it work for you? Well, what, what I found with stand-up was... Um, because of like, so if you have ADHD, the chances that you have hypersensitivity are really high. So I found I had a lot of anxiety off stage. I just couldn't navigate. Like if I went to, into a party and there were producers there and agents there, I'd see some comics who were so at ease in that environment and I would just spiral and it was really difficult. But on stage, um, I have always been, I've never been a very um, like, like, I, I, you know, I improvise a lot and I, uh, I think that's why I found um, doing stand up on telly quite hard because I was such a live performer, like, um, and I'd be a little bit of a rabbit in headlights because I think, gosh, this isn't just in the moment, this is being recorded. And so people, and all of that stuff would be going on in my head and I found it quite um, hard to be myself. And um, I have found though, since I've learned much more about ADHD, because um, the anxiety around 
the job has gone. I'm as scatterbrained on the stage as I was before, but I no longer care and I really inhabit it. And I realize that my brain is like, a, um, it does have its own little filing system that's never gonna be um, rehearsed. But yeah. I, have to, I can't write comedy down. So I have to do so many practice gigs, preview gigs. And that's the way they get embedded in my head. Um, I don't have a script or I do, you know, I, and, and think they are very different for me, I think, but I have made the decision for a little bit at least to stop touring because I need to just give my, myself a little bit of a rest. And I, and I did, and I sort of fell back in love with it. And now on stage, I have the fun that I should have done from the start. If that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. But I, the, the, you know, you, you talk about the the medication and you were prescribed medication, and as a as a creative person, you know, I think people are are so scared. Got to think. Well, hang on. I may be broken, but my brokenness has created all of this stuff. I am hugely successful. What if I start messing with it with with medication? Were you nervous about that? I was. But but I also wasn't because I, I never felt, I, I knew that I wasn't fulfilling my potential as a comic throughout my career because of my, um, my brain. And other people have the opposite experience. They think that, you know, they've done uh, brilliantly and they're really terrified to jeopardize that. What I would say for me, what the medication did was it, um, the way, the most scientific way I can explain it is um, it, it wakes that sleepy part of my brain that organizes the rest of my brain, right? That's as scientific as I get. And for me, that means that I can much better deal with all the stuff that give me, gives me anxiety. So by the time I get to the gig, I don't have anxiety, which used to hold me back. Your, the drugs, you know, don't aren't the be all end all. Like there are so many ways to manage ADHD before you even consider medication. I was diagnosed by my psychotherapist and we worked together for six months before um, we decided that, yeah, meds might be something to try now. Um, and, and I'd already had a seismic change in the way I approach my work in that I actually confront it now. I'm able to get feedback from my stand-up. I'm, I'm able to have people tell me, that's really hack, you're better than that, <laughs> what are you doing? Whereas I couldn't before because I had so much anxiety. So it, your actual creative skills aren't affected by supporting and managing your ADHD. And the meds aren't for everybody, but for me, they really helped. It, it's so weird. I hope you don't mind me saying this, Chappie, but talking to you is different. You know, when I've interviewed you before, there was always a thing where you, you spoke very, very fast. It was like you were always running to catch the next thought. And that's that doesn't seem to be you now. Yeah. You know, a lot of people have said that. I am um, much more connected when I'm speaking. And you're exactly right. Like, I, I, I did take, like, this morning I went for my run. Uh, I walked the dogs and I... Um, you know, did all the things that I need to do before I had this interview. So I'm much more connected with it instead of like this motor that um, the ADHD motor that makes me want to say everything all at the same time. <laughs> and it is, um, it is different. And I'm, 
I'm kind of touched that you've said that because it feels different to me and it's changed it's made my my whole connection with other people and my job and and the world a lot more meaningful yeah. because I can sit with it and I can stay with it and I'm not um I'm I'm not feeling pulled physically pulled to the next thing yeah it is fascinating. It's all in the book. Scatterbrain is the name of the book. It's out in Harbuck. Before we leave, we must just uh, quickly mention uh, Edinburgh. Where are you playing? What time? That sort of thing. Oh, um, yes. I'm at the Edinburgh Festival. I think I'm playing at seven o'clock at the Pleasance Courtyard. Don't quote me on that. I'm not 100% sure because ADHD is not curable. <laughs> <laughs> and also, because you're a star, you're only doing the second half. You're not doing the whole thing because why would anyone do that? That's the dream. My dream has come through to just do half of Edinburgh. So yeah. <laughs> nice to talk to you, Graham. Oh, so lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your story. I, I really is fascinating. Uh, Scatterbrain is the name of the book. It's out now in Harbour. Take care of yourself and maybe see you in Edinburgh. On the road we go. Let's cross to show chef Martha in Birmingham's Silly Oak. Hello there. Hello there. Uh, so where in the world is Martha Collison today? Oh, somewhere very tasty today, actually. We are just outside of Birmingham, very close to a certain chocolate factory, um, the Cadbury's World and Bourneville. Oh, wow. And so I've been saying, is it Selly Oak? Selly Oak, is that correct? Yes, Selly Oak indeed, and it's very beautiful. We're having a wonderful time. And uh, whose house are you in? So I am with Quentin and Sue in their beautiful house. They've got a lovely 16-year-old cat and the vegetable garden of dreams. I think I might actually stay here a little bit longer. <laughs> wow, it sounds gorgeous. Hello, Quentin and Sue. Hello, nice to speak to you. Hello. Oh, you're all there. Uh, so uh, who are you? Uh, what do you get up to? Uh, what brings you to Selly Oak? Um, university brought us to Selly Oak. So we both met at university and we're still here. We are, How so, many years on? yes, we're tw- yes, about 36 years on. You're still with me. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. And do, do you work at the university? No, um, we're both retired now, um, but we met at the university when we were students. Okay, did you take early retirement? Because on the radio, you sound very young. (laughs) (laughs) They said you'd be nice to us, Graham. (laughs) They're not wrong. (laughs) Slightly early, slightly early. Oh, very good, very good. And Quentin, I must ask you, it's not not a usual name. It's quite a gift to give a young boy. Was it a was it a was it a family name? Nicely put. Um, I I was the fifth son in the family. I think the first son didn't survive, but I'm the fifth son, and my parents in memory of the first son who didn't survive Quentin being Latin for or derivative of five so that's why I'm Quentin but my parents were very kind and they put it as I'm actually Michael Quentin so second name Quentin in case I wanted to change back to Michael but I've kind of stuck with it after these all these years so well it's character building I would have thought you know <laughs> oh, yes yes it could be it probably was in its time yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh, tell me this now, uh, are you both big cooks, uh, you know, or uh, oh, you must be if you grow your own vegetables, I guess. Yeah, we both really enjoy cooking. I suppose Quentin probably does, if I'm really honest, most of the, the, the meals, um, and he's, he's, he's very good at that. Um, and I enjoy baking, and I enjoy making sort of special cakes for birthdays. I've always made lots of special cakes for the children over the years for their birthdays. Um, so, yeah, we both really I, enjoy I it. I get in trouble for making the oven dirty with roast, but there we go. Yeah, roast oh. pork, his speciality, not great for the oven. 
No, it is. Uh, it, uh, when? I mean, you kind of think it's 2023. Come on, come up with a better, a better solution than this than a, stink, <laughs> than a stinky oven. Uh, tell me this, Martha. Uh, do you think you'll get outside at all for this picnic treat? I do. I actually think we will. When I was driving here, I really wasn't so sure because there was a significant amount of rain on the motorway. But we've arrived, and the sun is out. I think we could lay a rug out there and have a lovely time. I reckon so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, get a cushion, scatter it. Uh, all right, what are you making today? So we are making a picnic centrepiece today. If you are somebody who, when you go on a picnic, you hate having a roll which has been squashed at the bottom of a hamper or the bottom of a rucksack for the rest, the best part of the day, this is the dish for you. So this is called a pan banya, and it is a kind of stuffed picnic loaf. So this is a roasted vegetable and goat's cheese one. So it is basically a whole loaf of bread that I have removed the middle of and filled up with all sorts of delicious things. And then you take the whole loaf on your picnic and you slice it once you've reached your destination. Wow. Okay. So, and does all the kind of juices kind of fit, go into the bread and stuff? Yeah, so the juices from the vegetables and kind of tapenades that we've got in there go into the bread. Pan banya actually means bathed bread. So we're basically taking the bread, bathing it in all these lovely spices and pestos and delicious things and filling it up. And then everyone gets a little slice. So it's like a sandwich with loads of filling and less bread. <laughs> okay. And uh, Quentin Atsu, is this the sort of thing you might cook? Is this the sort of thing you might make? I think we definitely would. Um, as Martha says, it's so practical. It doesn't get all messy and you cut it open. It just looks so pretty. It is. All, in it's all the different layers. It mm. looks and smells gorgeous. You won't be able to smell it, but we can. Yeah, well, I, I've seen a picture of, of one and it looks amazing. Uh, just before we uh, play record and let Quentin and Sue loose on the Panbanya, <laughs> uh, um, tell me, what else are uh, Quentin and Sue getting? Because you're leaving some picnic stuff there, right? So we've got some nice little crisps. We're making some delicious little cakes tomorrow, which will complete the picnic. And there's going to be a lovely little drink to go with it as well. Oh, gorgeous. Uh, or have you ta- you've tasted the roasted veg, uh, roasted veg and goat's cheese? We have. It's absolutely delicious. It looks beautiful, smells beautiful and tastes beautiful. She's done an excellent job. Excellent. As, as, as you suggested a minute ago, Graham, all the flavours have soaked into the bread. So you get the lovely taste of the olive oil uh, and the sort of pesto-y stuff around and the goat cheese is lovely. Okay, let's find out how to make it. It's a, it's a hit. It's a palpable hit. Oh, yeah. please. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, off, off we go, Martha. How are we making this? So we're starting with the roasted vegetable element. So we're taking an aubergine and a red onion, slicing them into thin bits and then putting them into the oven with lots of olive oil, salt and pepper until they get lovely and caramelised, which brings out all the mellow flavours of that aubergine. Then we're letting that cool down. And whilst that's cooling, we are taking a loaf, like a cob loaf of bread. So you can either get this in Waitrose, the number one sourdough is perfect, or from your local bakery, you want a whole loaf of bread. We're using a bread knife to take the top off and then use a small knife just to get basically all of the middle out and save that for breadcrumbs you can freeze it you can do all sorts with that but put that to one side so you've got this big cavity ready to fill with lots of delicious things and then we are taking a jar of olive and sun-dried tomato tapenade but you could also use any of your favorite pestos spread that all over the inside so kind of all up the up the sides on the lid all in the inside that's kind of going to create that barrier and start soaking into the bread then we're layering it with our aubergine first then we've got some char grilled red peppers that come in a cook's ingredients jar so nice and simple a layer of goat's cheese we're trying to create these layers so when you slice into it you get like this rainbow effect so the goat mm. cheese goes in next then we've got loads of fresh basil as a layer then the layer of that roasted onion and then you pop the lid back on 
and wrap it in tin foil and then put it in the fridge and the trick here is to put something heavy on top so you want either a couple of cans or a couple of bottles of wines I hear Quentin and Sue are actually part of a wine club this evening so <laughs> they might take this along with them but we're going to use a couple of bottles of wine <laughs> to weigh it down uh, and then the next day or a bit later in the day all of those ingredients will have compacted down they'll hold together really nicely and all of those flavours will have soaked into the bread and become something quite delicious and in terms of you know it traveling and stuff like that like i mean obviously you want to to leave it long enough for everything soaks in but is there a point where you've left it too long and now it's just <laughs> it's sludge and tinfoil i don't think so i haven't personally tested it because it's always been too hard to resist it um but i think because you've not nothing that's too wet so you've just got lovely things like peppers and aubergines things that hold their shape but there's just enough olive oil to make it nice and tender and nice and moist Mm-hmm. It sounds gorgeous. Uh, roast veg and goat's cheese. How are you saying it? Banya. Uh, Sue was actually better with French than I am. I so, so I had to ask her a few times how are we pronounce it with Sue. I think it's pan banya. Pan banya. Pan banya. Pan banya. Roast veg and goat's cheese. Probably there's a French person now throwing their radio across the room. <laughs> probably <laughs> right. <laughs> I apologise. <laughs> and Quentin, uh, what are you tasting at your wine club tonight? Uh, tonight it's Provence wines and picnic. Of course, we, we chose it. Didn't, well, we didn't choose deliberate. Actually, just serendipity that it was the same day. So yes, we will be doing that later. So is that lots of rosés and things? Lots of rosés, a couple of whites, a few reds. Not many reds from Provence, but we should just taste our way around and have a, a good social time. What a lovely life Quentin and Sue have in Selly Oak. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, who does the hard work in the garden? Well, both actually. Both of us. Both, do, both yeah. of us. Yeah, we, we are interested in slightly different aspects of the garden. So between us, it covers all the bases. Very good. Uh, well, listen, I'll let you get back out into the garden and uh, enjoy all of that. And uh, Martha, I will talk to you tomorrow. When yes. we're just, what are we doing tomorrow? We're doing a little cake and we're doing a drink. We're having some little cakes and a nice portable drink for a picnic. Okay. Uh, if you'd like the uh, recipe for the roast veg and goat's cheese uh, then why don't you go to waitrose.com slash showchef you can find that recipe and indeed all of Martha's recipes uh, on our hub you can also check out the visuals and it is worth seeing because it is a feast for the eye as well as the mouth if you go to our socials at Virgin Radio UK uh, Quentin and Sue thank you very much we'll talk to you tomorrow that's us for now. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch me every Saturday and Sunday from 9.30 on Virgin Radio. And make sure you're up to date with all of our goings on at Virgin Radio UK on all of our socials. I'll be chatting to you very soon. Bye-bye. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. Virgin Radio.